Okay, folks, this is just getting weirder and weirder, alright? The whole link between Hinduism and Judaism. Alright. <clears throat> this is the second in a three-part series. I mean, the first here. Okay. A Jewish New Year's feast in Mumbai. Alright, so anyways, I'm going to read the second one. The possible links between Jews and Hindus. The next morning at 10 a.m. Okay, so I guess you could read the first one. I'm just going to start on the second one. The next morning at 10 a.m. I make my way to the Kenneseth Eliyahu Synagogue in South Mumbai. Yahoo. Yahoo is apparently Yahweh. The city has about 10 synagogues serving a population of about 4,000 Jews. Now this, this article was published in 2016. Okay. The Gate of Mercy Synagogue, built in 1796, is the oldest. The Kenneseth Eliyahu was built in 1884. This powder blue synagogue has two floors, carved wooden doors. Hmm, see, this is a very interesting theme with this. Uh, oh my God! With this, with this uh, theme of wood carpentry and wood and lots of this uh, let's call it sacred geometry architecture doors stained glass windows and a community center former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and Madonna have been visitors but I apparently cannot enter a guard named guess what a guard named Samson Stands guard at the entrance and says that prayers have commenced. Apparently, that's a thing with uh, synagogues. Is before the prayers start, the guard or whatever goes and um, gives the calls, and this was apparently. Uh, um, compared with Jesus and Peter, when Peter denied Jesus three times, then the rooster crowed. Apparently, this has something to do, to do with that. Okay, unless I am a known member of the community or a friend, they cannot let me in. On 26 November 2008, a series of terrorist attacks sh shook Mumbai among those killed were a Jewish rabbi and his wife at Chabad House in Nariman Point. Ever since then, security has been tightened at Mumbai synagogues, particularly during Jewish holidays. I sit on the plastic chair outside the door, trying to indicate that I am not going anywhere. One of the security guards seems sympathetic. Okay, blah, 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 blah. 
Okay, there we go. The I guess I could read the whole thing, it's pretty interesting. Okay, one of the security guards see okay, his name is Ruben and he calls his friends at Mumbai's other synagogues trying to see if he can get me into another service. We have lived in India for 2,000 years, and not one of our synagogues has been the target of any attack or vandalism, even, he says, in between calls. This Chabad house comes to India and boom, they get attacked. This is the difference between Indian Jews and outsiders. I nod and try to reach Yael Jiraj for help. Her line is busy. I call one of my other... <clears throat> Jewish contacts who asks for the name of the guard Samson I reply they are all called Samson which Samson what the fuck man oh my I have to I have to look this shit up now <laughs> I cannot believe this shit thankfully Yael calls back at that moment she tells me to hold tight her brother Aaron is inside the synagogue Aaron comes <laughs> what the fuck Aaron comes out with him an escort I go up the stairs into the prayer room we need at least 10 men to start the service so sometimes we have to wait for a Quran says Aaron there are about 12 men on one side and two women on the other the men are wearing what seems like a shawl across their, their shoulders and chanting in a sing-song fashion I had never paid attention to religious clothes, but watching the Jewish men in what seems like shepherd's clothing makes me think about how Hindu and Christian priests are dressed. It is as if their clothes, which probably made sense when these religions were invented, have been frozen in time. Exactly. It's like India, you go, and it's like all these ancient different cultures just got to be who they wanted to be and it's like they're stuck in this time that's what that's the and, and it's like all these different people doing it's like the final free zoo <laughs> for animals i mean for humans sorry not animals humans <laughs> okay it is as if they're okay no change since the early years of their evolution. The Jewish shawl over the shoulders reminds me of cold nights under the stars. The insight of Knesset Eliyahu is extremely warm, sweating men in beards nodding their heads to the sing-song chant. Still, the synagogue has that preterm preternatural peace that somehow descends on all places of worship as if thousands of souls who have crossed its threshold have been chanted into submission this is so interesting man I need to go visit this place the Cochini Jews were based in Fort Cochin and there are hardly any left. The Baghdadis spoke Arabic and came from Yemen. 
They too are a minority relative to the 4,000-odd Bene Israels who live in India, mostly in the Mumbai area. The Bene Israel arrival to India reads like a Hollywood or Bollywood thriller. It began with a shipwreck 2,300 years ago, but like all tales, the seed for this one was sown centuries before that. You see what happens when you fucking follow the rabbit hole, man? God damn, look where the fuck we are, man. The, <laughs> the year was 175 BC in the hotbed that was the Hellenistic Empire, Egypt, Rome, Greece, and Jerusalem. Egypt, Rome, Greece, Jerusalem. So this is the Greek Empire, the Hellenistic Empire. A mad king named Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to stamp his will on the Jewish people. He outlawed the Torah, the Jewish religious book, and said that they could not circumcise their boy children or keep kashrut, the Jewish dietary laws that are eerily similar to what my orthodox Tamilian grandmothers practiced at home. To escape this perse persecution, a group of Jews jumped into ships and fled from the Sea of Galilee. They headed east to... Okay, it's C-H-E-U-L. They headed east to Kiel, Chul, a biblical trading port to forge a new life. Yo, is this fucking soul... Korea? The, no, that doesn't make sense. That's like way... En route, their ship encountered horrific monsoon winds and crashed into the dangerous twin rocks off the Konkan coast of India. Where the fuck is that? Everyone on board perished except seven men and conveniently seven women. Once again, that story of the seven brides for seven brothers once again this story pops up the seven couples were washed ashore to a village called Naugaon near Alibaug they called themselves Bene Israel or children of Israel all Bene Israel Jews are descendants of these seven couples this is where the tale gets murky. If Bene Israel historian Nisim Moses is to be believed, Moses is the author of Bene Israel of India, Heritage and Customs. He has emigrated to Tel Aviv from Mumbai, not because of Zionism, he says, but to contribute knowledge about the Bene Israel Jews to the Israeli homeland. Moses links the Bene Israel shipwreck to the Chitpavan Brahmins who live in the same Konkan region. The Chitpavan Brahmins, interestingly enough, believe that they are descendants of people thrown ashore dead, also on the Konkan coast as the result of a storm. Interesting. Local inhabitants collected their dead bodies for cremation on a common funeral pyre. Just as the fire was lit, a Hindu sage named Parasurama passed by. He was on a campaign to destroy the Kshatriyas, the warrior caste of the Hindus. 
Seeing so many fair-skinned, healthy corpses, as Moses says, the sage saw an opportunity to strengthen the number of Brahmins in the world. He sprinkled some water on the corpses, chanted some mantras, and brought them back to life. What? What? This is... Yo, this is fucking crazy. This is, first of all, this is shamanism, voodoo. Like, oh my god. What a fucking story. Okay. The, the people anointed and resurrected by Parasurama call themselves Chitpavan Brahmins. My goodness, what a fucking story already. As a community, they consider themselves superior to the other Brahmins. This is what I'm saying, man. They have lighter skin and generally do not encourage intermarriage with other castes. See, this is the thing with the with this whole... This theme seems to be going with... Um... Anyways, their names are quite similar to Bene Israel names, something that Moses points out in his book. Aptekar is a Bene Israel name. Apte is a Chip Chitpavan Brahmin name. That is interesting. For all we know, the Chitpavan Brahmins and the Jews came from the same stock of people who were thrown ashore in that shipwreck, says Moses. I mentioned Moses's theory to a friend in Bengaluru who happens to be a Chitpavan Brahmin. You may have Jewish genes, I tell her, expanding on the story. You can tell your Jewish friend to go take a hike, she replies. <laughs> we Chitbavan Brahmins believe that we descended straight from the gods. Moses is unfazed by her reply. His grand theory is that Hindus and Jews come from a common land and common ancestors. He lists 43 reasons in his book to prove this. It's kind of interesting that his name is Moses also. <laughs> Both the Jewish and the Hindu calendars are lunar. I agree. Yom Kippur in the Jewish calendar coincides with Durga Puja in the Hindu calendar. Purim and Holi occur on the same day. I agree. I will also say I was doing some research on um, ancient India like religion. And they also had bull sacrifice, cow sacrifice, believe it or not. Believe it, it, believe it or not, it blew my mind. You can look it up yourself if you want. Both, I say that because in um, again, once again, it comes back to the whole thing of if the whole of like Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, and India was all one like big land content like one big nation basically back in the days what they if if that is true what they're saying about that then it does make sense then it was all this serpent female feminine um goddess worship shiva linga stones and all that stuff is all it's all there then the it all matches up then Okay. Um, bo 
both Jews and Hindus perform marriage rites under a canopy. They remove their sandals while entering a temple or a synagogue. They have ritual baths before special occasions. Both religions require the isolation of women during the days of the menstrual period and after childbirth. Their death rites are similar. The Jewish First Commandment says, I am the Lord. One of the basic tenets of Hinduism is Aham Brahma Asmi or I am the Creator. Hindu and Jewish ritual objects are very similar. The six-pointed star, Magan David, is also a sacred Hindu symbol. Exactly. This is what I'm saying. It's The original name of Abraham was Avram, father of Ram in Hebrew. The Panchadiyas, or five lamps used in Hinduism, are similar to the menorah lit during Hanukkah. The design of the second temple and the Tanjavar temple in Tamil Nadu are very similar. I go on, says Moses. In the Bible, it says that the Garden of Eden lay in a valley of four rivers. Where do you have four rivers in one valley? In Kashmir. If you look at the descriptions of what Moses saw when he saw the land of Israel, all the descriptions match that of Kashmir. Interesting. Yo! What? What? Kashmir, in other words, could be the promised land claimed by Hindus, Muslims, and now the Bene Israel Jews, or at least one of their historians. Oh my god, what have I landed on, man? Moses acknowledges that his theory is far-fetched and that he has trouble selling his ideas to his fellow Jews, both in India and in Israel. An, obvi an obvious criticism of his grand unification theory is that Hinduism is a polytheistic religion, while Judaism is, is a monotheistic religion. Although, as Moses argues, Hinduism's most esoteric philosophy, Advaita, propounds monotheism. Yeah, Hinduism, the, the, the true core teachings is... It's it's God is one. It's not. It's <laughs> Hinduism has the best explanation of the Trinity, dude. Come on. Most scholars refute this theory. Obviously, the similarities between Judaism and Hinduism are purely coincidental, says Nathan Katz, professor emer emeritus at Florida International University, and editor of the Journal of Indo-Judaic Studies. If you divide the world into Abrahamic and Dharmic religions, Judaism and Hinduism would be the true would be the two great world religions that are older than most. Naturally there would be some similarities. Which one's older, bro? <laughs> Which one's older? I don't think that there is a link, says Islet McDonald, my dinner companion. A link indicates a common ancestry of some sort. Judaism has developed independent of Hinduism. Both religions are ancient. They share commonalities. If you want to create a calendar in the ancient times, the things you observe are day and night. The waxing and waning of the moon. Naturally, you would create a lunar calendar. Yeah, so what's the problem here? Moses, and it's not even just those two cultures that have lunar, follow the lunar calendar. 
the lunar calendar has to do with what did we say <laughs> the feminine goddess mystery worship schools okay Moses will have none of it after the destruction of the second temple he says Judaism went from being a sacrificial religion to one that involved prayer and meditation I agree I have lived first temple Judaism which is the form that was followed by my Bene Israel ancestors he says and I have lived the second temple Judaism in Tel Aviv I know where the crossover points are the problem is that you have a number of half-baked Western social anthropologists who come to India to prove their constricted restricted viewpoints which are primarily from Second Temple Judaism I agree they don't want to admit that Hinduism was the primordial religion from which other religions borrowed from I agree I'm not sure how I feel about the conviction with which Moses speaks. I suppose I should be happy that he considers my religion, Hinduism, the primordial religion, the original faith from which all others spring from. But what interests me is his motivation. Uh, let me see. Do I want to keep reading this? Um... Let me read this. Remember the one before where the Cochin Jews? Guess it. Look at this shit. From carpentry to temple management, the. Okay, this is a uh, Indian History Congress again. The early Brahmin settlements of Kerala were also centers of religious worship, which gave them a temple-based culture. So, <laughs> the Brahmins in Cochin, then, who built temples, <laughs> are Jews, right? <laughs> the Nambudiris became the Uralars of the temple, which, apart from enhancing their social status, also strengthened their linkage with the ruling ruling class. Despite the hegemony of the Brahmin Uralars in the temple, we have stray incidents where non-Brahmins exercised managerial control, both in the external and internal affairs of temple. This paper aims to evaluate the non-Brahmin office of the Takuta Kamal associated with the Irinjalakuta temple and to examine how this particular office became a bone of contention between the neighboring states of Cochin and Travancore. Located in the former princely state of Cochin, Irinjalakuta was one of the original Brahmin centers of Kerala. As in the other Aryan settlements in the state, this grama also had a temple-oriented culture. Oh, this grama, okay. This grama, I'm, I'm think, I, think, I think that's village. The temple stands in 
subdivision 2 of survey number 650 of the blah 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 besides the temple also possessed okay the Uralars of the temple belonged to nine Nambudiri families okay this that phrase right there the Uralars of the temple hmm the Knights Templars hmm belonged to the nine Nambudiri families and as the temple was a Gramak Setra, they were only its trustees. However, the Grandavaris show that they have been exercising some kind of proprietorship in the temple. And amongst these, the most important was the agreement of 1342 AD, by which they granted to the Raja of Onatukara the right of installing the Takuda Kamal. Yeah, isn't that 1342? When was the first? Okay, 1342. Let's see, what happened during this time? So, lots of, uh, Alright, back to this. Agreement by which they granted to the Raja of Onatakara the right of installing the Takuda Kamal. There was also a council of 15 who enjoyed the main Karema rights who also managed the religious services of the shrine. The highest executive and legislative body of the temple was the Shabha Yogam, consisting of 42 members, including Raja of Cochin. Although the early history of the temple is shrouded in mystery, you, you hear that phrasing? History of the temple is shrouded in mystery. Temple and mystery and shrouded. <laughs> Except for a couple of references in the Grandavaris and two inscriptions, there are indications of its rivalry with Matilakam, situated three kilometers west of Irinjalakuta. The fact that Matilakam was a Jain center strengthens this view. In the course of this rivalry, Matilakam attempted without success to revoke the spirit of the deity, and this eventually led to a second installation in the Irinjalakuta temple. Though there is no conclusive evidence, it can be reasonably presumed that the occasion for the second installation demanded the presence of a carpenter to supervise the construction works. For constructional ceremonies associated with the structure are performed by the art artisan priest, a senior carpenter. This office's due course must have came to be known as the Takuda Kamal. Yeah, this is kind of interesting. Mm, I'm gonna let's see.
Cochin, unwilling to implement the unequal treaty obligations, was frantically looking for a scheme to overcome the imbroglio. What? There's always so much drama, man. So basically, if all this was like the Brahmins back then, hmm. Okay, this is another one. Brahmin clans. Okay, let's see. Yeah, look at this. It's the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research. That's interesting. Okay, the Brahmins in India still preserve a system of exogamous groups called Gotra and Pravara within the endogamous caste. These groups have the same names derived supposedly from immemorial antiquity, cutting across the many regional linguistic and other Brahmin subcasts, forming smaller endogamous groups for which no sanction exists besides custom. Hence the translation of Gotra by clan is justified only by lack of a better one. The earliest works on ritual like Bodhayana contain only a skeleton list of the Pravaras, the Pravara being a group of Gotras forming the ultimate exogamous unit. Okay, one thing I do want to say is from the stuff I've shared on the Jews in Calcutta, the lady kept saying, from all the videos I watched on the Jews in Calcutta, they would keep saying how they always felt at home in India, in Calcutta, and that India was the only country in the world that always allowed them to s s live in India without any problems, without any problems. Isn't that interesting? I just want to say, I just think that's interesting. Bro supplies a long-felt uh, need by working meticulously over the translation of a Gotra list and rules given by Purusotama, an, an author of unknown date, who collected and arranged older literature. The translation was made very difficult by the lack of a reliable text. The uncritical work of P. Chensal Rao, Rao gives several divergent lists. Bo has worked through his manuscript, his manuscript evidence with care, selecting readings with insight, presenting the variants, tracing quotations with admirable patience and great success. Okay, what what am I reading? The Gotra list cannot possibly be early, no matter how archaic the system. The oldest authority as noted is the Matsya Purana. The Puranas were being revised till the early Gupta period, as 
has been proved by Parjitar's analysis of the historical prophetic portion. Their great prototype, the Mahabharata, has been rewritten not earlier than the 2nd century AD, no matter how much of the older versions sur survived. That the system is itself not much older in its present form than the Puranas is made clear by the artificial grouping into 18 separate major groups, in spite of the insistence that the original ancestors were the seven sages. Interesting. There exist at least two separate lists of these seven sages, while seven, with Agastya as eighth, cannot account even for the principal groups. Now the number 18 has a special sanct sanctity in the Purana complex. There are 18 major Puranas. The MBH is the story of the Mahabharata complex. Okay. The Mahabharata is a story in 18 sections of a battle fought over 18 days by 18 divisions that annihilated each other. The influence remains paramount till the days of the poet Rajasikara, who composes his Kavirahasya in the Puranic manner to justify the profession of making verses. That the eighteen major Gotar groups are not well, are not original is to be seen from the disassociation of the Kanvas from the Kasyapas, though both are closely allied according to the Sakuntala episode while being jointly Okay. Burroughs methodology is open to far more serious objections. He cites with approval Ben Venistis Nista's derivation of Ari as the designation of the other blah 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 what? Hmm. To derive Aryan exogamy from this frail support in philology means ignoring other ambivalent words such as hosted in Latin with the same meaning the hmm. You know what? This is fucking crazy. What? Oh my goodness. Okay. In the preface, Bro has criticized some views of mine as the points vitally concern the subject of early Gotras. It is necessary to consider a few of them even at the risk of giving for the rest let me state once again that i have never believed in an aryan race having gathered a considerable amount of evidence for the progressive aryanization of people who whose beliefs were penetrated by brahmin ritual with reciprocal influence upon Brahma brahmanism Okay, Burrow says that my views about the descendants of Vastra are void through uncertainty for the two names Titiri and Kapinjala may well be of late origin. 
The whole point of the Vastra story is that it occurs in the Tatiriya Samhita, which would not repeat such a myth about the name Tatiri without a measure of belief. The Samhita is far older than any of the documents from which Bro uh, reproduces his Gotra lists. Similarly for totemism, where I casually gave a few of the better known names as evidence of totemic origin, survivals from a far older stage. There is no implication that the developed Brahmin society was totemic in the same sense as the Australians studied by Spencer and Gillen. Roman society did not favor human sacrifice, but survivals such as the formula Sacer Esto for a capital punishment, the Pisciculi Pro Animis Humanis, furnished at the June 7th fish fry for Vulcanus, and many other references show that the sacrifice had once really existed. Okay, first of all. <laughs> June 7th and Vulcanus. That's a volcano god. This is the Romans. Romans had a volcano god. Hmm. Says bro, the essential feature of totemism which we should look for is definite identification of an individual with his totem. It seems to me that there survives enough in the way of of observances and superstition to show that this too had once prevailed at the time of birth the hindu child is still assigned to one animal yoni out of 14 though the animal cannot obviously be associated with the constellation of birth i further suggest that the particular animal given to each hindu God as a vehicle must have been totemic. This is shamanism, motherfucker. It's just spirit guide. <sighs> must have been totemic in origin. The custom going far back to the Indus Valley and paralleled in Mesopotamia, as proved by <sighs> look at this cylinder and stamp seals. Not to speak of Hittite sculptures or Egyptian theriomorphic gods. Remember in the movie um, uh, Gladiator. Even there, they had the little idols. That is the uh, bicameral mind working right there. That's what it is, the bicameral mind. You look at those little idols, you project your whatever voice on those little gods, and that's what you did. You projected your archetypes out, and all these temples and these statues of all these gods, that's all it is, your psyche being projected out on these statues man that's why in the Jewish or in the Bible it says you shall have you shall make no image of God that's basically what it meant because when you start making images you have all these feminine archetypes that you how can you express these things you can't express these things what will people think <laughs> all right Where the fuck was that? During the millennia of urban, literate, but pre-Aryan culture which have left their mark upon Hinduism, there were great developments away from the crude uh, 
idea of a totem, yet it was never lost simply because there always coexisted, as they still do, primitive cultures with whom the society remained in contact. I mean, literally, you have grown-ass adults playing Pokemon, gotta catch them all, go get them. I mean, that's shamanism. You guys are, that's shamanism. The caste system managed to absorb them sooner or later, not without concessions on both sides. Perhaps the best evidence for derivation from a once stronger totemism is the word vrata. V-R-A-T. Ratata. <laughs> Which now generally means observance. But initially meant behavior like a particular creature and is carefully illustrated in the Maji Manikaya Kukuru Vatika Sutanta and okay where we have the ascetic Asela Senia following the dog Vrata. The Buddha says that after death this fanatic will naturally be reborn as a dog. This disturbs his Kolian lay follower. Kolian. K-O-L-I-Y-A-N. I have never heard that word before. What, what the fuck is Kolian? Who is himself a bull vrata man. So this is talking about shamanism. Hence could expect transmigration into bull form. Yeah, transmigra- transmigration. Pythagoras. This is all shamanism. The idea of transmigration is natural to believers in tot you hear this is this the idea of transmigration, which everyone says was Pythagoras' blah blah blah, is natural to believers in totemism, first because of the identification of the individual with his totem, then because several totems form a society. Wow, it is literally, oh wow, I see, then because several totems form a society. So, this clan's totem is this, is this, uh, has this face, looks like this, has these designs, is this color, blah blah blah, okay. That becomes into a banner, that becomes into a symbol. You can even make a statue. All the statues of the saints in the Vatican Square on the top of the Vatican. It's the same idea, man. Totems. Our psyche being the archetypes of our psyche being <laughs> literally just has a statue outside. And the Egyptians had all these statues and apparently even now, women go to the statue of uh, Sekhmet, I think, the lioness god, and apparently have interesting experiences just talking to the statue. That's why I'm, I'm just saying it's just very interesting. Stone, vibration, salt, light. It's, it's just... Okay. Mm. 
As for the other sometimes contested aspect of totemism, namely that the totem animal or plant was formerly the main diet, later become taboo. Uh, that's how it works. Okay, we have the taboo against beef eating and names like pipalada. The word vrata also had the meaning feeding exclusively upon proved by madhuvrata for a bee. The, the govratins are not a Buddhist fiction but mentioned with approbation in the Mahabharata 597.13-14 where a special section of the netherworld is assigned to them. This is all shamanism. Among minor demons, as in Deganikaya 24, a stanza was especially written into the text to explain that the Govrata observers were those who imitated the spiritual placidity of the bull. Identif identification of the individual with the totem animal is not in doubt. A historic clan name like Satakarni could hardly have come into existence without harking back to totemism. Their inscriptions give only its Prakrit form Satakani. However, Bro notices a Prakritic tendency in his text and is and it is clear from Parditor's work that the Puranas have been Sanskritized from an account which was originally in some Prakrit, probably in Pali. The Sata is presumably the Sanskrit Sapti, not meaning seven, but horse with special reference to the horses of the sun. Thus the, po the proper Sanskrit form is Saptivahana, as the Kalki Purana reports it, rather than Satavahana, which is the faulty re-Sanskritization Saptikarna, horse ear is a split totem. Bro points out an egregious, egregious error into which scholars are not likely to fall, namely taking Gotama as the Buddha's baptismal name instead of a Gotra name. I have fallen into it nevertheless an excellent company which includes the whole of the early Buddhistic order and Buddha's own family as well. Hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I have fallen into it nevertheless. Blah, blah, blah. At least his stepmother, Maha Prajapati Gotami, says in the verses ascribed to her in the 
Terigata Bohunam Vata Ataya. Okay. Verily, for the benefit of many, did Maya give birth to Gautama, which makes Gautama no more of a clan name than Maya. Siddhartha is a later name absent in the older Pali canon. <coughs> Moreover, as this Gotami is his maternal aunt and stepmother, it is not the Buddha's Gotra. Bro explains this away by saying, Maha Prajapati took the name Gotami virtually as a surname on the occasion of her marriage into the clan. <clears throat> Why she alone of all the women of her time needed Needed a, needed a virtual surname does not appear. Buddha's wife. Buddha had a wife? The fuck? <laughs> Am I... Buddha's wife. Vasudhara in the Apadana. Kopa in the Lalita Vistara. Is called... Pada Kakachana Kakana <coughs> Not Gotami in the same sources that is Katyayani which can only be her maiden Gotra. Moreover, no other member of the Buddhist family seems to have been addressed as Gotama. When the Buddhist monk is initiated, he becomes a son of the Sakyans. Not a Gotamid. The Gotamaka almsmen were a later small group. Finally, the Buddha is called Angirasa, but this means sun in Pali, just as it means light god so often in the Rigveda, not in the sense of a clan group. Finally, the Buddha is called Ag Angirasa, but this means sun in Pali, S-U-N, just as it means light god. Bro dismisses the ancient Sutta Nipata words ascribed to the Buddha, Adichi Nama Gotena Sakya Nama Chotiya. I am of the Aditya Gotra Sakyan family <clears throat> saying that Aditya merely signifies descent in the solar line. Certainly all Sakyans claimed Iskvaku etymologically related to Iksu sugarcane or gourd which has a totemic appearance, Iksu, as their ancestor. Hence, perhaps, the later Puranic fiction of a solar lineage, but if so, they must all have been Adika Nama Gotena. Possible but improbable conclusions are then that the Pali word Gata <coughs> does not mean the Sanskrit Gotra here, though it does elsewhere, or inasmuch as the Sakyans were too proud to mate with 
non-sakyans, the gata is not an exogamous unit, hence irrelevant to the entire discussion. The first interpretation of Gautama as Buddha's Gotra name is in the Mahapadanasutta of the Deganikaya, obviously a late formation under Brahmin influence, one could even say influence of Kasyapa Brahmins, as in the Jain Mahavira's supposed Gotra and birth story. What is needed to round out any theoretical work on the Gotra, all Brahmin texts specialize in theory to the detriment of fact, is field work plus search in the inscriptions. <laughs> Bro tried the latter without discarding his tacit hypothesis that the Gotra list ex exists as, as a closed record which may be restored merely by inspection of a correct manuscript. This, I fear, is not true. The one reproach that can be leveled against this his editorial work is that the manuscript evidence gathered does not suffice to deal with Brahmin... Go okay, man, Jesus Christ, these fuckers just talk and talk. The essential fact is that no system can long outlive the productive structure of society upon which it is based. The people of India no longer make their living as their ancestors did 2,000 years ago. The machine age makes a sudden profound difference. Differences of religion and language were aggravated by political circumstances. <clears throat> The essential feature of the Gotra system, ignored by Bro, is its relation to property. Here, the philological, literary, and ritual sutra evidence all agree, while the historical develop development becomes clear. The okay, whatever. I'm gonna I'm done with this one. There was another one. Okay. This one is way longer. Okay. The influx of Sephardim into the ancient Jewish community of Cochin in South India resulted in a pattern of social organization unique in the Jewish world. The infamous white Jew, black Jew, brown Jew system. The Jews of Cochin organized themselves in patterns derived from their Hindu social context, a system known in the West as the caste system. The white or Paradesi foreign Jews were Sephardi immigrants together with a few Jews from Iraq, Europe, and Yemen who joined with an indigenous elite. The black Jews, better known as Malabari Jews, were an ancient communi community which may have originated at the time of the destruction of the second temple. 
each of these groups were slaveholders and manumitted slaves from the paradisic community were called brown jews while manumitted slaves from the malabari community were known by the malaya malayalam term oral makers When was this? This was in 1993. This is from Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, Paradisi Jews, so that's the foreign Jews, would not count any of the other groups for their minyan. Would not allow them synagogal honors, would not marry them, and would not eat meat slaughtered by their ritual slaughterers. Ever since the 1520 responsa by the eminent Sephardi halakist Rabbi Ibn Zimra, foreign Jews had been unanimous in condemning this discriminatory behavior and paradise Jews and coaching had been uniform in ignoring these admonitions yet while Indian culture may have been the source of the problem it was also the inspiration for its solution AB Salem known as the Jewish Gandhi led sit-ins hunger strikes and other forms of civil disobedience Satyagraha against these paradisi practices which came to an end only recently a unique system of jewish community organization reflecting the indian caste system evolved in cochin a port city in southwestern india wherein the white or paradisi foreign jews sephardim who came to cochin via turkey syria and iraq discriminated against two other groups of jews the indigenous black jews who lived on the malabar coast perhaps since the destruction of the second temple and the brown jews manumitted slaves meshu karim in hebrew the Paradises were mostly Sephardim, some of whom arrived in Cochin as early as 1511, but they also included a, flu a few leading families from Kranganur as well as immigrants from Europe, Poland and Germany, and a few Yemenites. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a, a videos on YouTube about um, uh, group families of blonde hair blue-eyed Indians well not Indians but people who lived in India f for for generations apparently the Meshu Krarim were not permitted synagogal honors in the Paradesi synagogue nor for that matter in the seven synagogues of the Malabari Jews they could not intermarry with the Paradesis nor could they circumcise their sons in the synagogue as for the Malabaris they did not intermarry with the Paradesis nor would Paradesi Kohanim hereditary priests perform Pidyon Haben the rite of redemption of the firstborn with them nor would the Paradesis eat meat slaughtered by Malabari 
Sochetim, ritual slaughter. Also, another interesting thing I want to point out is that when you think of a Jewish menorah, then you think of a labia, then you look at a shivalinga, that's the mysteries right there. Okay. Uh, this pattern of social organization began within an entirely and typically Indian context, reflecting the liabilities imposed by the Malaburis upon their former slaves. So I just want to say, point out here, if I'm reading this correctly, they had kind of this own self kind of thing going on by their skin color basically all right um this pattern of social organization began with an entirely and typically indian context okay but it was excess exacerbated by the arrival of sephardi emig emigrants during the 16th century in order to be accepted by the high caste indian society of the maharajas the newly arrived Sephardim did what many immigrant communities in India have done. They identified with a recognizable indigenous caste, in this case the Malabar Jews, and came to ally with its elite in a pattern of discrimination against subservient elements of that caste. Jews and cultural adaptation. Cochin Jews not only carved out a niche in Kerala's complex caste system, but they also reflected Hindu caste behavior by dividing themselves into sub-castes. This internal division was purposely based on those Jews considered to be or not to be descended from ancient Israel. However, some community members claim it was racist in nature based on skin color. I agree. The result, a white or black or brown Jew pattern of religious and social organization. Jews who were not part of the white subcaste sub were denied religious equality in the Paradisi, now called Cochin Synagogue. <coughs> right, same bullshit, just you can't mix with it. Okay. Many Western Jews are shocked to learn of a segment of the Cochin community's blatant discrimination against its brethren. Yeah, bro. It happens with the best of us. If you have, if you had a family, I mean, shit. If you have, I mean, it's like if you've seen families. Okay, coaching communities blatant. Disc okay, there are two interrelated reasons for this uncharacteristic and unegalitarian behavior. First, it demonstrates what is characteristic of all Jews. An unflagging ability to adapt to various lands and survive. Second, it reflects the Cochinites' high degree of assimilation into Indian culture, replacing Jewish egalitarianism with Hindu hierarchy. Indeed, history shows that their aloof behavior was not an isolated case. Dutch Jews were known not to mix with their Baghdadi brethren brethren in Indonesia and closer to home the same held true in America between German and Eastern European Jews 
Although Judaism was certainly a, a common bond, respective regional cultures were also strong identification factors, so much so that interaction between groups was sometimes impossible. As Sephardi Jews came in waves to Cochin from such lands as Iraq, Syria, and Turkey, as well as much smaller groups from Yemen and Germany, they found in India a group of fellow Jews who were so different from themselves that these barriers seemed insurmountable. These cultural obstacles were only fortified by Kerala's caste system to which typically these foreign Jews adhered. Within a relatively short span, they became Indianized. Although they never faltered in their faith, they did conform, by and large admirably so, to India's societal norms dominated by caste distinctions and later compounded by colonial rule. In modern-day India, A.B. Salonik, named the Jewish Gandhi, led a tireless struggle for equal rights among his people inspired by the Mahatma's teachings. Salem undertook such nonviolent methods of protest as a hunger strike and sit-ins to end the discrimination in his synagogue and community. Within the last decade, all social and religious divisions have disappeared but then so has most of the community. Emigration to Israel, which began in 1950 and accelerated during the 1970s, has decimated this once thriving community. While once more than 2,500 Jews lived in the princely states of Cochin and Travancore, today less than 60 remain. Some elders view Cochin's legacy of discrimination as a curse that led to the community's seemingly inex inexplicable demise. Hmm. This is just very, very fascinating. We're at one hour. Let me see. It's like I could just keep reading this shit. Okay, here we go. Um. Okay, let me go back. Sorry. The first documented account. Okay, let me see. It's like, ah, oh man. Just. Alright, this is an account of someone who was. Okay. From the island of Cochin, there are about 900 heads of households. What? Of these 100 are Jews by origin and of Jewish stock, and they are Meyukasim. The rest are rich and devout and charitable. The Meyukasim do not intermarry with them and call them slaves, and on this account they have contention and quarrels without end. Among these rich persons are some who are called partial slaves. A group are... Jewish traders who come from Turkey, Aden, Germany, and Caucasia. And they bought female slaves and begot from them sons and daughters and, and, and emancipated them in their land with the status of Jews. Another group did not emancipate them, but after the master had gone, 
the slave remained with the status of Jew and there is no one who would object to it. Another group who had become Gerim, proselytes, were mingled among them. All sections of these Gentiles have intermarried among themselves and have held to the religion of Israel. They have become a large community who observe the Torah and are rich and intimate with royalty and the princes. They are the root of the negotiations between traitors and attested Meucasim Jews. The latter, on the contrary, are, are a minority and poor, but they call the others the offspring of slaves out of jealousy and hatred. There is no one who can prove that they are slaves, but apparently not a single one of them was given a document of emancipation because people were not expert at this and they did not know how to explain the matter. Anyways, okay. What else? I just think it's interesting that first of all I did not know so much Jewish history <laughs> existed in India first of all I mean it's, it's it's fucking crazy okay not surprisingly they enjoyed their new prestige and were determined to keep it conforming to the immediate world around them meant there was no room in their coveted circle for their fellow Jews who did not measure up. They were not alone in their exclusionary behavior. Indeed, they resembled they resembled Malabar's high caste Christians and Muslims who those who claimed foreign origin and who shunned any social or religious interaction with their own native brethren to assert their purity and thus maintain their high status in Hindu society. Jesus Christ man. However, it is impossible to uphold the Jews' claims. Jews. Jews. Is that Jesus? Jews. Jesus? Hmm. Claims that they never mixed with indigenous people. Since the reign of King Solomon, Jewish merchants had joined other traders from the Middle East, Far East, and Europe in undertaking the long, hazardous, yet, yet profitable journeys to India for valuable goods, spices in particular. Some of these Jewish mer merchants and crews settled in Malabar. On these early expeditions, fraught with physical hardships and marauding pirates, it seems quite unlikely that they would have taken any family members with them much more likely is that they married or lived with local women. The mates and offspring of these unions, as well as many household servants and slaves, were converted to Judaism. This this shit is this is all happening in fucking India. This social pattern continued for centuries virtually uninterrupted except for a small sporadic influx of Jewish traders, a few of whom may have brought their families because there were so few foreign settlers there probably were no formal social distinctions between them and local Malabari Jews. What abruptly changed that dynamic was the mass migration of entire 
Sephardi Jewish families fleeing Spanish and Portuguese persecution in the 15th and 16th centuries. The importance of ancient Jewish and Indian ancestry. Why and when this polarity arose between the local Mal Malabar Jews and the Paradesi or foreign Jews as they were called are at best speculations. As noted, the earliest known account of internal community strife was about 1520 when a group of Cochinites petitioned a Cairo rabbi to verify their Jewish status and rid them of their stigma as slaves. While the Meyukazim did acknowledge that the Malabaris were Jews, they still continued to call them the offspring of slaves and used that as an excuse to eschew any contact with them. This is like This is like a whole new fucking World man I had no idea This much history was With the Jews and India The fuck They claimed, okay. They claimed Joseph Rabban as their own. The Paradises repeatedly mentioned him in their letters and chronicles, sang his praises in their Hebrew and Malayalam folk songs. Did you hear that? Hebrew and Malayalam. <laughs> and symbolically likened a bridegroom to him in their wedding rituals. Joseph Rabban, recipient of the copper plates that, according to one translation, pronounced him ancient Kraganor's Prince of Anjuvanum, was embraced as an ancestral hero. Also held in great esteem was the Hindu royal family called the Paradesis, their protectors from the time of Sri Ravi Paskara Varma's rule in Kraganor, to the reign of his of his descendant, the Maharaja of Cochin. Even today, some Paradesi Jews who can directly trace their ancestors back to Iraq or Spain, nonetheless speak proudly of their forefather Joseph Rabban. Sarah Cohen of Yemenite origin was typical. Like other Paradesi women, she kept notebooks of songs meticulously handwritten in Malayalam which she and other women sang on special community occasions, weddings in particular. These notebooks incidentally contain only the lyrics, only the lyrics. There were no musical notes whatsoever. The women having memorized the various melodies, which had been passed down from one generation to the next. After she gave an impromptu performance of a traditional wedding tune, Sarah followed with a, with a brief explanation. On that day, she explained, the bridegroom is like Joseph Rabban. He is like a king. Certainly, the Cochin Jews were not the only ethnic group in India that could be accused of having selective recall of history. Mm. They conformed to the immediate world around them and resembled Kerala's high caste Hindu 
Nambudiri Brahmins, Canaanite Christians, and high caste Muslims, all of whom claim descent from early immigrants. What? I didn't know that everybody wanted to be Jewish at a point. Christians and Muslims, too, claimed early Kranganor settlements replete with privileges similar to to the Jews is granted by the Hindu royal family. I didn't know there was this much fucking history. The fuck? I, I had no idea, man. Like... Like, this shit just keeps going and going. It's like... Their Hindu complexion and their very imperfect resemblance to the European Jews indicate that they have been detached from the parent stock in Judea many ages before the Jews in the West and that there have been intermarriages with families not Israelitish. I had heard that those tribes which had passed the Indus have assimilated so much to the customs and habits of the countries in which they live that they may be sometimes seen by a traveler without being recognized as Jews. In the interior towns of Malabar, I was not always able to, to distinguish the Jew from the Hindu. The white Jews look upon the black Jews as an inferior race and as not of a pure caste, which plainly demonstrates they do not spring from a common stock in India. It is indeed curious that about 20 years later, the traveler Rabbi D. Beth Hillel reported that the Malabaris were of somewhat darker complexion than the white Paradisi Jews, yet they are not of the color of natives of the country or of persons descended from Indian slaves. Man, it's like fucking based on skin color, man. Get the fuck out of here. It's skin color is based on sunlight, man. How much sunlight you have. Jesus Christ. Let's see, where do I want to end? This thing just keeps going. I'm just... See, there's all this thing about black Jews. Indeed, the Paradisi Jews' economic decline within a re relatively short time span was dramatic. In the autumn years of Dutch colonial rule, Adrian Moens, who served as governor of Cochin from 1771 to 1781, described the white Jews as among the wealthiest and most distinguished merchants. By contrast, Moens noted that the black Jews lived more modestly, either earning their living from agriculture, cattle rearing, and as small traders of food items such as butter and poultry. They just worked outdoors, man. Jeez. About 50 years later, Rabbi 
It's like even nowadays. If you work outside, you will be darker versus if you have indoor <laughs> like. Okay. Um. It just seems to be the same fucking story of skin color being a problem. Mm, let's see. Fuck it, I'll read the conclusion. The 20th century saw profound status changes in the Cochin Jewish community at the same time that it brought vast social, political, and economic metamorphoses throughout Kerala and India. On the state and national levels, the powerful status quo British colonialism and an ironclad caste system were challenged. The impact of education cannot be underestimated. Not only did it alter many people's vision of their world, theoretically, it did so in a very immediate, concrete way. Western-style education was in increasingly accessible to the masses as never before. Individuals from poorer families were, for the first time, able to obtain university degrees, which opened doors to professional empo employment and vastly improved e economic condition. No longer so tied to caste, they were part of India's new emerging middle class with more economic and social clout. Young Paradesis from all backgrounds who got a taste of this independence found it a heady experience. The changing volatile world around them, coupled with relatively progressive westernized, westernized viewpoints espoused in the universities, had expanded. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. But for all the changes, some Cochinites who were lumped in the Meshukarar category still harbored pent-up pain and bitterness from the discrimination they faced. One Jew town elder was quite convinced that the irrational, hurtful behavior of the whites resulted in a curse on the entire Cochin community. As proof, he pointed out that there were a number of unmarried people, those who married either were childless or had small families, a history of mental illness marred some households, and in more recent times, immigration to Israel had resulted in Jew town's demise. A devout Jew who often quoted Torah forcefully when making a point in conversation, he said, there was no other explanation both for the terrible injustices to which innocent people were subjected for centuries, as well as the recent decimation of a once illustrious community. These people are cursed for what they did, he asserted. It is this curse that explains the death of this Jew tank. What? Who said this? 
Oh, it's because of their racism. I see. Okay, that's why. Yeah, I agree. Because what goes around comes around, man. You might be doing good today, but you could lose it all tomorrow, man. So, the golden rule, man. Be just golden rule for everyone. I think everyone can agree that. You know, that's the golden rule. I mean, the golden rule is golden because it it it, it you know it works. All right, peace.